Hello everyone and I'm very glad to be back at Gresham College and today I'm going to speak about one of my favourite subjects, the Italian Renaissance. I'm going to fo focus on Giotto and the early Italian Renaissance. But first I want to provide an overview. I'm going to talk a little bit first about the purpose of art history, the historical context, um, economic, political, religious and intellectual life and changes in the period. The stylistic cross-currents that were present in Italy in the late 13th and early 14th century, Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic, Classical. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about specific art architects and sculptors, um, specifically uh, Cimabue, the Roman school, Assisi and the Florence. So first I'd like to talk a bit about the purpose of art history. And I think, generally speaking, it's important to think of, of art history in terms of teaching us not only how to look, but also to see what is in a painting or an artwork. It helps us understand the creative expressions of the past and to appreciate them, and provides knowledge about the art of different cultures, the different currents and influences, and also the changes in content, style, form, images and symbols. And in this way, I think, a, a, a study of art history can help enrich our own thinking and ideas. So the Renaissance in Italy, I think we've got the general idea of the atmosphere of the Italian Renaissance and the way this was in fact reflected in art and architecture. To begin with, there was a lot of influence from the Byzantine period and so we'll look at some artworks from early Italo-Byzantine examples the up to about 1400. And I'm going to be using well-known examples. Some of them will be in London in the National Gallery or the Victorian Albert Museum, for example, or in well-known places on the continent like the Uffizi or the Louvre, which hopefully we'll all be able to visit again soon. I want to consider how the spirit of the age um, reflects the art and architecture um, leading on into the Quattrocento and the High Renaissance. So, olive groves and cypress trees, rulers, republics, peasants and popes, plottings and poisonings, pageants and festivals, magnificent palaces and highly painted churches, the Medici, Michelangelo, Machiavelli. This sort of sums up the concept of the Italian Renaissance, which I've set here against the background of one of the very earliest landscapes in European art, the landscape by um, Lorenzetti in Siena, showing the countryside and the olive groves and cypress trees. <clears throat> it's important, I think, to know a bit about the history of the period. So we're going to look first um, at the way in which Italy, or what is now known as Italy, was then a collection of city-states and republics, and also very much ruled by the popes. But it was a period of exceptional growth and change, economically, politically, and culturally, but especially intellectually, where rational inquiry was beginning to replace the um, theology of the Middle Ages. There were also changes socially and in the different forms of patronage. And here we can see on the map um, the way that Florence was, um, and Siena and the Papal States were all different republics, um, quite often fortified hill towns like Siena, or larger 
conglomerations like Rome and Florence. The changes in religion were important at the time and chapels and patrons. Of course, the church had been the main patron of art during the Middle Ages. And you can see on the left the way that the patron, Scrovegni, is donating his chapel to the church. The Last Judgment is quite traditional, but here at the bottom, here is Scrovegni donating the church. So although we have a private private patrons coming in in the early Renaissance, the motivation is still religious because the chapel was donated for the salvation of his soul as well as for the glorification of the um, city-state of, of Padua. So the different influences and stylistic cross-currents um, can be mainly separated into, as I mentioned, the change in religious and philosophical thought. Then we have different stylistic influences, Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic. So let's look first at Byzantine art, just very briefly. This is the sort of thing that was happening in 11th century Greece. And according to Vasari, who wrote the lives, the first real art historian, who wrote the lives of the artists in 1568, he regarded Byzantine art as a, a clumsy, awkward style that was crude and stiff and mediocre. In fact, it's very sophisticated, these gold backgrounds, much more spiritual approach, almost an abstract expressionist approach. And Vasari criticised it because it wasn't a naturalistic background. He regarded history as a uh, history of art as the development of art towards the more natural, the more natural, the more realistic, the better in Vasari's view, culminating with Michelangelo. But in fact, the Byzantine art um, should not be criticised for not doing what it was not trying to do. And it's actually very sophisticated, almost like a form of abstract expressionism. You wouldn't criticise Picasso for not um, making his figures realistic in the same way as in Byzantine art. But it was a huge influence in Italy. For example, if we look at the work of Guido da Siena, and there is a nativity here to compare on the left, we can see that in the um, 12th century in Siena, there was still a great deal of influence of, of Byzantine art. This led to what's called the Italo-Byzantine style. And a very good example of this is in the National Gallery in London. Dated 1262, it's actually the oldest um, work in the National Gallery, by Margarito di Arezzo, the Virgin and Child enthroned with narrative scenes. So you can see that there is a lot of Byzantine influence there in the different scenes that are depict depicted, the sort of stylistic manner of it. The Christ child is depicted as a, as a mannequin rather than a baby because there's, there's not the will there to depict the deity as a helpless baby in a realistic way. In addition to the Byzantine, there's also a Celtic, um, Northern Romanesque influence. So here, for example, in Coppo de Marcovaldo's Last Judgment in the Baptistry in Florence from the mid-13th century, we can see you've still got these Byzantine gold, um, gold backgrounds. But, and the Christ is depicted on a very diagrammatic arc-en-ciel or the um, rather cosmic depictions of seated on the, on the heavens. So there's still this influence here. 
There's also quite a lot of Gothic influence coming down from the north. And here's another illustration by Guido de Siena. I showed the um, nativity in the top right-hand corner a little earlier. And again, you can see here that there's a, a very stylistic approach, very stylized approach. Um, St. Peter is sitting on the throne. And there's an attempt to depict the space here, um, a realization that as you look at architectural or sculptural matter, then the orthogonals, these diagonal lines here, recede into the distance at an angle. But of course, they're receding outwards or in a rather haphazard way. It's not until the Renaissance proper that linear perspective was mastered in order to create realistic space. Another influence is actually Roman influence, Roman Romanesque arches. This is um, just, I'll just mention an architectural example here, San Miniato al Monte, which is on the hill overlooking Florence. Well, we've got this Romanesque approach. And in fact, the baptistry in Florence, which you can see here, um, was so Roman in its style, it was actually thought to be classical and ancient until um, very much later when it was realized that it was, it was actually 11th century. So another big change at the beginning of uh, the 13th century, St. Francis of Assisi died in 1226. He was canonized in 1228 and almost immediately and had a huge influence on religion, which took on a, a much more personalized and humanized approach as he, um, for example, invented the idea of the Christmas crib. He depicted Christ and spoke about Christ as, as a more humane figure rather than a a remote and awesome deity, as in the Byzantine Pantocrator. And here is a picture of Assisi, where this massive church was built, and the whole church is covered in frescoes. The upper church tends to have the earlier frescoes by different masters, not always identified, the master of the St. Francis cycle, sometimes identified as Giotto, but sometimes just noted as the St. Master of the, the Master of the St. Francis cycle. And in the lower church there are some later works, particularly by those from the Italian from the CNE school. So it, immediately in the lower basilica we've got a, an example by Cimabue. And you can see that his depiction of St. Francis, I put in different versions here because the colouring varies slightly on some of these reproductions, but you can see here as St. Francis is depicted on the right, that he's actually much more humanely depicted. And also the, the form and shape of him is, is much more realistic and lifelike. There's an attempt here to depict a, a three-dimensional space, the Madonna's throne, and then put three-dimensional figures into that three-dimensional space, which is really key to the early Renaissance works. Cimabue's Santa Trinita Madonna of 1280 um, is, is shown here. And again, the Byzantine Gothic influence is still there, but it does have this much more humane um, approach. The, the Christ child becomes more baby-like and the modeling of figures in form is, is more important. Now, Cimabue was really famous in his own time. And 
Dante actually mentioned him in his purgatory, said that once Cimabue thought to hold the field, and Giotto's all the rage today. So Giotto came to replace Cimabue. Cimabue's crucifixion at Assisi from 1280 shows again this more humane person where you've got the feeling of a figure, although it's in bad condition, you've got the feel of a figure really hanging on the cross as the women below stretch out their arms, expressing their emotion about this um, about this event. This could be compared with his his some later works of Christ on the cross, um, which is much more realistically depicted and shadowed, more like a a human figure, and compared again with his Virgin and the Child on the left, which is a a very small work. So if we compare the fresco I just mentioned with Christ on the cross, then we can see that this is really uh, a developing approach to a more realistic Uh, depiction of the suffering Christ on the cross. Now similar things were happening in Rome and we know that Giotto went to Rome and for example here Cavallini's Last Judgment in Santa Maria in Trastevere. Um, It looks as if it really is getting some influence from the Roman art and artifacts that still existed at the time as the seated figures of the apostles surrounding Christ are almost depicted in Roman togas. Um, As I said, we know that Giotto went to Rome and this might have influenced him. But if you look at the light and the shade and the modelling, we can see that this different approach is is, um, becoming apparent in Italy. So following the earlier works, we can now look at Giotto and Assisi. On the left, we have an illustration of fresco by Giotto from the Arena Chapel in Padua. But there's more controversy about the frescoes at Assisi, which are generally accepted to be by Giotto, but sometimes described as being by the master of the St. Francis cycle. Giotto actually became his apprentice. As Vasari tells us, one day Cimabue was on his travelling back from Florence and he came across the young Giotto who was sketching a sheep on a rock with a, with a stick um, before he'd received any instructions. So Chimabue took Giotto under his wing and um, he became apprenticed. Now, if we look at the frescoes at Assisi, we can see that there is a very different approach by Giotto or the master of the St. Francis cycle. So if we look at an earlier altarpiece by Berlingeri, St. Francis's Sermon to the Birds of, of the earlier 13th century, you can see here that the priests are standing in a line on a sort of shelf. There's an attempt to, to depict space in the architectural building behind them and the also the birds and the hillsides, but it's all it's all very stylized. Um, more in the Italo-Byzantine or medieval manner. And we can compare this immediately with the Master of the St. Francis Cycle or Giotto's frescoes of the 1290s. You can see here that there is a far more naturalistic approach. The artist has really looked at um, the world around him in the spirit of St. Francis's preaching, looking at the world as the work of God, 
um, depicting the monks in um, three-dimensional volume in with gestures and expressions on their faces as they look at the birds which are also very naturalistically depicted and identifiable. The trees too and the suggestion of the landscape is very evident here as well. Some later examples show St Francis sharing his cloak on the left where we have again some architectural images in the background and you can see here if we look at this one the orthogonals receding showing acute observation of, of naturalism and how buildings really work in perspective and again the buildings on the right here as St Francis renounces his worldly goods the perspective doesn't quite ring true the orthogonals are a bit haphazard as they recede into space and we've still got a, a frieze-like approach to the to the figures but they are however very monumentally met, modeled in light and shade with the different expressions and gestures of the people as as they look at St Francis. Another example from Assisi is the master of the Isaac cycle in the upper church from the 1290s and this is because the name is because he was the um, responsible for painting the Isaac cycle and it has been the story, the story here of Isaac and his sons and it has been surmised that perhaps this too was a young job by a young Giotto or possibly Cavallini who I mentioned as being active in Rome. Just to get it straight about perspective before we move on here's a modern diagram of how linear perspective actually works that when you have the orthogonals meeting at a single vanishing point in the distance and this is the way to make this, the architectural space really ring true or it can apply to things like trees which diminish in size as they recede and this contrasts in the renaissance with the medieval idea of, of trying to get a feeling of distance by placing things higher up up the, up the picture space or behind one another but this of course didn't really come to fruition until the quattrocento in the 15th century so the next example is something that is very securely documented by as being by Giotto the Scoveni Chapel in Padua also known as the Arena Chapel because it was on the site of an ancient uh, arena this dates from about 1304 to 13 and Vasari really claims here that it was actually Giotto alone who by God's favour rescued and restored art. And you can see here the series of frescoes running around the chapel, almost like a story. I've included the slide on the left with a few people to show actually the size and scale of this. And also we have the last judgment on the end wall. So this is what Giotto is, is depicting here in a very traditional layered format but his series of frescoes showing the story of Christ and his ancestors round the chapel is really quite remarkable. For example here we have the depiction of Joachim and the shepherds that is the father of the Virgin Mary who was expelled for being childless and you can sense 
his emotions here. The emotions are coming through much more clearly than in, in earlier works as he bows his head before the shepherds. The body is very, very monumental and sturdy. The Adoration of the Magi, again, is another example of Giotto's style in Padua. And as I mentioned, he's taking a more scientific approach as well, looking at things like birds, naturalism, and so on. And here, what is particularly noteworthy is the depiction of a comet here, standing in for the Star of Bethlehem. And we do know that Halley's Comet was um, uh, arrived in 1301. And so it, he seems to have depicted this comment that would have received a lot of attention at the time. The camels are quite fun with a sort of a, almost a smiling expression. And the same smile seems to come through in the donkey um, where Mary is depicted as the, as the flight to Egypt. Um, so we've got, a, again, a real sense of space, the way the figure's feet are placed uh, sturdily on the ground in contrast to medieval sort of pointed tiptoes. And the background or landscape is also very solid, whilst the angel still has a, a very ethereal medieval flavour to it. In the cycle about Christ's life, one of the particularly dramatic frescoes is of Christ um, betraying, being betrayed by Judas as he bends to kiss him. And you can see the, the drama of the moment. And what is very strange here is, is the rear view of a figure on the left, which almost seems to be like the viewer being brought into the picture. Rear views were unknown in, in medieval and Byzantine art. The lamentation over the dead Christ is also a particularly dramatic example by Giotto. And you can see how the landscape, this cliff is, is draws the eye towards the dead Christ. Again, we have rear views of figures, almost as if the viewer is sitting is, as part of the circle around the dead Christ. And the gestures and expressions, the emotions of the characters, the shock and horror um, of the people below and reflected in the feelings of the angels above is, is very evident. And Giotto was very famed for this in his own time. On the lower registers in the chapel, there are some what are called grisaille paintings made to look rather like stone. And this choice of subject here is interesting because on the left we have caritas or charity or love and actually holding a heart. This is one of the earliest images of a, of a heart in art, um, which seems to be gaining the symbolic shape that it now has. But also he depicts particularly um, more secular subjects like justice on, on the right-hand side, who is depicted in a very solid way, in a very solid niche, showing the secularity and drawing away from um, purely theological subjects. Giotto's Ognissanti Madonna is also a, a slightly later example, but postdates the Scrivenni Chapel, 
takes you to about 1310. And you can see here that the way the angels are kneeling um, in, in real space, the Madonna is enthroned. Giotto has created a three-dimensional space, um, making the orthogonals recede here and here to give a real sense of space of where the Madonna is seated, surrounded by the angels with halos, yet it still has a, a very gold background. The Madonna is very robust indeed, and the, the child, Christ child is very securely seated on her lap. To sum up, uh, Giotto, we, we can see that at this time in the Proto-Renaissance, there are all these different trades and stylistic themes from Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic, um, and even Far Eastern, all coming into play um, to develop this new art form of the early Renaissance. Giotto's late works are important. I'm afraid we don't have to go into detail here about the frescoes at Santa Croce in Florence. These are in the Bardi in the Peruzzi Chapel showing the lives of St. Francis and St. John the Evangelist and St. John the Baptist. Uh, on, on the right, you can see that these later works, they're actually not in such good condition as, as the Arena Chapel or Assisi, because some of them, as you can see here, they'd had altarpieces um, built over them. In later life, he became capomastro of the Duomo, the cathedral in Florence and was also an architect. He designed the company, which is still standing. So now I'd like to look at the Sienese school. And it's important to remember that the Sienese school was rather distinctive and different, although occurring at the same time as the works at Assisi, Giotto's works, or Cavallini in Rome. And there was quite a lot of interchange between these, these artists who also, for example, the, the Sienese artists did Vertica to Sisi, which wasn't that far away. Um, the main artists I, I'd like to mention are Guido da Siena, who I've already spoken about, who was quite influenced by the medieval and Italo-Byzantine styles. But then the main ones are really Duccio di Boninsegna, Simone Martini, and the, the brothers Pietro and Ambrogio Lorenzetti, Pietro probably being the older of the two. Now, between them, these artists actually developed a, a rather distinctive and different Sienese style, which was much more lyrical um, compared with the, the emphasis on volume and solidity of Giotto um, works at Assisi in the Roman school. The Sienese tended to emphasize line more than volume, which led to a rather lyrical as opposed to a monumental approach. So we can start by looking at Duccio's Maestà of 1308. And this is the main panel of the Virgin Mary um, holding the Christ child with all the saints, angels, um, contemporary figures and bishops and so on uh, arranged around her. You can see that there's some attempt to um, give a solidity of form to the throne, which Mary, modelled in light and shade, as are the other figures, is very uh, firmly seated on this. So there's still some Italo-Byzantine influence here, especially with the gold backgrounds and halos. 
the, the medieval idea of identifying the saints like St. John the Baptist here um, and depicting them in the normal way is also evident. But there is a, there is a new tenderness in, in the depiction of the Virgin and Child. Now this, as I mentioned, was the main panel of what is a, an incredibly large altarpiece. Now the altarpiece was of the at the Duomo in Siena was um, dispersed in the 18th century. Some of the panels remain, some have been lost, and the slide here shows uh, an impression of what it would have looked like when all the panels were together. So we have the main panel of the Virgin in Majesty here. Across the top, there's the story of, of the Annunciation to uh, Mary and also her, her life, her death, the Dormition of the Virgin, her ascent to heaven. And then along the bottom, we have the Annunciation and Nativity again. And when this was made, it is very, very large. It processed through Siena. And Although Siena, like Florence, was incredibly rich, uh, again, like Florence, based on banking, trade, the cloth trade, and so on, there were problems. There was plague, there were enemies. And so the idea was that this um, Maya star, the altarpiece of the Virgin in Majesty, would protect them from all of this. And of course, also the origin of altarpieces at this time, there was actually a papal decree in 1310 that altarpieces were made for each church. And this gave individual artists much more leeway to create separate artifacts. Now, the back of the Maya star, again, we have a reproduction here of what it would look like shows many, many more scenes. And here we have the, the story of Christ. And you can see Christ's mission and the fishermen and the Last Supper and eventually the, the passion and crucifixion of Christ. A particularly notable scene on the bottom left-hand corner is Christ's entry into Jerusalem. And here we can see the architecture is depicted in a three-dimensional way with the orthogonals receding as a sort of a proto um, use of, of one-point perspective. So we've got also the distance, however, is, is created by putting figures higher up the scene. Although here, unusually, the, the larger figures are in the background signifying their importance rather than it having the smaller figures in the background. So there's something not not quite right here, but it's getting towards what uh, Vasari would call the rebirth or renaissance, rinascita in Italian of, of um, art. Christ enters in with his halo and the, the donk riding on a naturalistic looking donkey and a nice touch is the figures here up in the trees, craning to see Christ. As I mentioned, the altarpiece, the Maya star, was dispersed and broken up. And um, happily, perhaps for us, there are three panels in the National Gallery in London. We have the Annunciation and the Healing of the Man Born Blind are two examples. 
which I've picked out to show you um, from these examples in, Lon in London, how the linearity of the Sionese school um, with this sort of medieval Gothic um, gold persists longer than in the, the frescoes of Giotto and at, at Assisi. And here on the right, the healing of the man born blind, there's again a slightly medieval approach where we've got the same figure depicted twice. So we've got two scenes for the price of one, as it were, where the man is, is healed and then able to see. Um, but the architectural designs at the back are, are really showing a different approach to the settings of these uh, historic and theological scenes. Duché was particularly famous for his large Madonna, the Ruccella Madonna of 1285. And again, the Virgin Mary is seated very robustly on the throne. But see how the linearity comes through as we can trace the edge of her gown and veil um, in, a, in a way that was so popular in the Sionese school, but less so elsewhere in Italy. Um, Blue was normally reserved for the Virgin's mantle because it was made from lapis lazuli, which was one of the most expensive materials from which pigments are made. Again, the angels are depicted around the, the throne and the ones at the bottom are, are very firmly placed in actual space, although the others seem to be floating aloft rather. Again, there is an example of a Duccio altarpiece in the National Gallery in London, dated from about 1300. And we can see here there's a, an increased tenderness in, in the Virgin's relationship with, with the Christ child, who is still, however, shown somebody somewhat like a, a mannequin or a miniature person or, or deity, rather than a chubby baby. Now, Duccio was married, he had many children, um, so he knew what a baby looked like, but we've still got this slightly um, austere approach to the depiction. And again, we've got the, the gold backgrounds typical of the medieval period, or also having some Gothic influence. Now, just to compare, um, I've just talked about Duccio's Madonna in the centre, we previously saw Cimabue's Madonna on the left and Giotto's on the right. And I think it's quite interesting to compare the three great Madonnas by these three great early Renaissance artists, looking at the way that Cimabue started to rake up this more strict, stylized approach to the depiction of the Virgin with more space and modeling of form. Then we have Duccio's Ruccello Madonna in the Sionese style, which is more linear. And then on the right, we have Giotto's uh, Ognissanti Madonna of 1300 or so, where it is really monumental and volumetric in the way that the figures are depicted. What is particularly remarkable about these uh, old pieces is their enormous size. They are housed in the Uffizi in one of the galleries. And you can see here, especially on the right from the inclusion of a few figures, how absolutely massive these old pieces are, about 12 feet high. 
now ended up in the museum, of course, rather than being in, in situ as, in, as intended. Another well-known artist of the CNE school is Simone Martini, and he also produced a version of, of the Maya star in fresco. And here we can see, again, the sort of the more tapestry-like, the more linear approach of the CNE school. The canopy under which the Virgin is seated um, gives a depth to the painting. And we do have a lot of a lot of figures here depicted in a in a naturalistic way, but again with an emphasis on line rather than massive volume, as the Virgin is seated on the throne in, in the centre. This was a large fresco. And the Palazzo Pubblico in Siena, where the um, the Republic from from where the Republic was run, is is the site for many of these works that I'm going to be showing. Opposite, for example, in the Palazzo Pubblico, again by Simone Martini, is a very different subject from the Maya Star or Virgin and Child. This is an equestrian portrait of Pioriccio da Fogliano in 1328, where he, the warrior is depicted um, against a background of landscape scenes of cities that he'd conquered and under military camp on the right. So we can see how, here how the subject matter is, is moving away from um, not only religious themes, but also secular and uh, republican themes here. But one of the most exquisite of Simone Martini's work is the Annunciation of 1333. Here we've got a combination of, of the realism and naturalism that's coming into Italy at this time in, in works of Giotto and, and at, at Assisi, where Simone Martini also did some work. But here we've got the Annunciation where the angel, the flattering drapery, shows how the angel seems just have to arrive to have sort of almost flown in from the, from the left um, and landed where, while the Virgin has a sort of half attraction, half shrinking away from the angel who is delivering this message that she will be the mother of Christ, the mother of the Son of God. We've got a lot of Gothic influence here in the, the way the altarpiece is completed by the surrounding uh, work, the pinnacles, Gothic pinnacles and um, gold background and gold halos of the figures um, and the, the accompanying saints. As mentioned, the shrinking away, half, sh half shrinking half attracted, rather in awe, um, as the angel announces to, to Mary what her role is to be. And the, the words are actually inscribed here, that she is to be um, favoured. The Gothic idea I mentioned is also known as Gothic sway, and this is a an example of a Gothic sculpture from reams of, again, a, a virgin and child um, 
but this sort of gothic sway as she's she takes the the weight of the child on her hip is typical of gothic of the of the period and something that influenced Simone Martini who actually moved with the popes to Avignon in the 14th century and uh, was therefore quite influenced by by the French gothic looking in detail at the angel on the left the detail of the plants and foliage as well as the face of the angel and and hair is is absolutely exquisite and one can actually um, imagine that, that this is almost um, something that, that came to influence Botticelli's works later in the 15th century. It, it's To me, it's reminiscent of, of Botticelli in the approach to the foliage and the flowers and the, the beautiful angel with um, the feathered wings. Now, the Lorenzetti brothers, Pietro and Ambrogio, were also very famous in Siena. Pietro and Lorenzetti, the older, piece, the older of the two brothers, um, painted an altarpiece at Santa Maria della Pieve in Arezzo, the Santa Maria of the, of the people, um, as that indicates. And it's interesting that this altarpiece is actually still in situ in the church for which it was painted, whereas so many of the others have ended up in museums being too fragile or, or difficult to remain in place. Another work by Lorenzetti is the deposition from the lower basilica at Assisi. And here you can see how the, in the deposition of Christ from the cross, the enormous, the weight of the Christ as he is brought down is, is very tangible, as well as the emotions of those surrounding him, the mourning of the, um, of Mary, Mary Magdalene, kissing the feet and hands of Christ. Um, the background is, is blank. Um, neither neither gold nor any indication of landscape so as to ensure focus on the dead Christ. Um, one particularly rather perhaps gruesome naturalistic touch is the use of a pair of pincers uh, in the centre slightly towards the right to remove the nails from Christ's feet. So it's showing a more realistic approach rather than symbolic. And again, the linearity of the Sionese school comes through here. Later on, uh, Pietro Lorenzetti painted The Last Supper at, in the Lower Basilica at Assisi. And here we can see he's really taken on himself the incredible challenge of trying to depict space in a hexagonal room which is really difficult to get the perspective right by, by any accounts, but he gives a fantastic feeling of space in the um, depiction of the Last Supper and the, and the disciples here, showing some realistic touches with the, the bread and, and wine and food on, on the table. But even more realistic and naturalistic is the scene to the left, where we have the servants preparing and cleaning the dishes, which are licked by a, a cat and dog, and you know, depicted in a sort of a very homely touch, 
as against this very severe um, approach in in the um, stylized haloed saints and Christ on the right. Another scientific naturalistic approach is the starry sky above, um, which shows with with a couple of comets there and uh, and a moon shows the interest in science and scientific reproduction coming along at the same time as we've got these rather classical figures of angels along the top of the columns. So there are lots of, as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, there are lots of stylistic influences that are all come together in this um, early proto-Renaissance style. Here's the detail of the, um, the servants on the left, the fire trying to catch the light of the burning fire and um, create a realistic scene which contrasts with the incredible immensity of the scene on the right-hand side. Ambrogio Lorenzetti, probably the younger of the two brothers, uh, painted fewer religious themes, but was well known for his frescoes in the very large Palazzo Publico in Siena. And here we have his allegory of good and bad gov government in the Palazzo Publico, um, with a multitude of figures. We've got faith, hope and charity depicted at the top. And along the bottom, we have justice here with the scales of justice, peace, which is almost the focus of the, um, in the centre of the painting. Um, and she's actually treading on armour and military paraphernalia, followed by fortitude and prudence. The large male figure represents the common good of the commune of, of and republic of, of Siena, with magnanimity, temperance, and punishing justice on the right. Justice is a major theme because the other figure of justice, the, the figures of justice begin and end this row. Um, but the decapitated head shows that justice is not afraid to act when necessary. Along the bottom here, we've got um, the attendees who are largely identified portraits of, of Siennese dignitaries. Um, and still we have a classical motif here where we have Romulus, Remus and the wolf depicted as a reference, here you can see in the detail, to ancient Rome. Around the surrounding walls, um, Virgil Lorenzetti depicts what the effects would be if good government is followed. And here we have good government, the effect of good government in the city where we've got um, a fantastic city depicted in one of the, what can really described as, as, a, as a landscape proper, one of the earliest landscapes are being done by the Lorenzetti in Siena at this time. We've got village scenes, markets, animals being taken to market and, and peasants, but also um, dancing, dancing girls and the more senior, more um, affluent courtiers of, of the city. His depiction of um, good government in the countryside, as I showed earlier in this presentation, shows the whole countryside, remembering that Siena is a, a hilltop town, 
stretching out above from that beautiful courtyard that I, I showed a, a little while ago, um, stretching out across the hills with the olive trees, the vineyards, the crops. These are all depicted according to the labours of the month as the peasants work in the, in the villages and surrounding farms and areas, whilst the, um, the nobles, I'll show you in the detail here, are out hunting with their dogs. So this is a, a very realistic um, snapshot, almost photographic snapshot of a, of a scene um, in, the, in the landscape. And again here, trying to show his prowess at um, perspective, showing a rear view of a donkey. From the middle of the, of the century, around 1340, um, we have a group of artworks by the so-called followers of Giotto or the Giotteschi. Um, on the left, we have Taddeo Gaddi, who, who again depicts Joachim, this time meeting Anne at, at the gate. And here you can see that there's definitely some influence of Giotto here in the monumentality of the figures, the light and shade on the figures to give them a a solidity and a feeling of, of anatomy. But there's also the traditional approach to the architectural background, again, coming from Giotto and the Sienese school, but a very homely touch in the figure on the left who appears to be taking a lamb and, and items to market. So there is a combination of approaches here, but the expression and gesture, the warmth and the affection of the couple is very clear. By contrast, on the right, we have a, an old piece of St. Catherine by Bernardo Daddy, who seems to be clinging more to the Gothic and gold backgrounds of the medieval and Byzantine and Italo-Byzantine style. But still, the figures are placed on a, firmly on a very firm shelf in space. And um, the throne, the, the means of torture of St. Catherine, the wheel, is almost tran transposed into being rather throne-like as for the Virgin Mary. Now from about 1340 to 1400 there's a rather a change in the artistic styles. Here we have an altarpiece by Andrea Orcagna in the Strozzi Chapel in the Santa Maria Novello in Florence dating from the early 1350s and here it seems to mark a return to the the rich gold, Gothic, um, Italo-Byzantine style where Christ or is depicted as a, as a very austere God, um, who is very, very much a powerful figure. Um, rather than the more homely approach as we saw, um, for example, at Assisi. So this sort of more austere, um, approach was actually the result of what I'm sure a lot of you know of as um, the terrible plague that uh, that swept Europe in the middle of the um, 1300s from 1347 to 1352 and actually um, peaking at around 1348. The Black Death actually wiped out about 40% of the European population. And as well as affecting society and the economy and everything else, it had enormous psychological and spiritual effect on the populace because it was thought at the time 
to be a punishment for sin, that the plague had been sent by God, this austere um, deity in the centre of this altarpiece, as a punishment for sin. And so it was the guilt of people, their own culpability, which had resulted in, in the Black Death that was necessary. Um, and so this led to a huge increase in piety. It led to giving donations to the church in the hope of securing life and salvation. And so this was one of the reactions to the Black Death in, in the mid-century, this turning to the church more and increased piety and even the flagellant, self-flagellant flagellation as people roam the countryside. Um, trying to uh, absolve themselves from sin. And the same feeling comes through in these examples of frescoes by Nardo di Cioni in the Strozzi Chapel, um, where on the right we have a depiction of paradise, with, which bears similarity to Giotto's version, where the saints and angels are all shown in ranks, up to the top with Mary and Christ at the top. Mary achieves a very sig great significance at this stage. You'll remember all, all the altarpieces showing Mary, the Maya stars, the Madonnas. And she is almost here in this age of Mariolatry, almost on a, on a level with, with Christ. But at the same time as this sort of joyful picture of paradise, um, the depiction of hell is very dramatic indeed. On the left, we can see Nardo de Cioni's depiction of hell, where we have the um, levels of hell correspond very closely to Dante's Inferno as a reminder of um, good behaviour, which might avert things like disasters like the plague. But as well as this feeling of, of guilt and turning to the church because of these dreadful punishments, there was also the feeling of eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die anyway. And so here in Trainer's Triumph of Death, we've got a depiction of courtiers here who come across, who are celebrating and enjoying life, but then suddenly come across three dead people in coffins. Um, again, around the middle of the century when the Black Death was getting hold and plague was so serious. So they're holding their noses um, indicating the idea of, of smell as well as the other senses that have been depicted in art up to this time, as they encounter this um, reminder um, that sin um, will end up being punished and that we all die anyway. So to sum up, we've got a time here of huge economic and social change where Italy and the Italian states were developing extremely rich um, areas based on banking, merchants, um, the cloth trade, and using these, using the wealth changing to um, more secular patronage, but at the same time changing religious thinking, the, um, the thoughts and ideas of St. Francis depicted again on the left of this slide, um, having a more humane approach to religion. Um, and stylistically looking at, at Italy in the northern, more northerly part and central parts of Italy that were being influenced by the Byzantine, Roman and Gothic trends in art, um, as well as the true revival of the classical in art, 
um, looking at ancient sculpture and depiction in the round and so on. So lots of artistic trends and new ideas, but also underlying all this was, of course, the observation of nature, a more humanist approach and a more scientific approach, whether that was in the depiction of trees and foliage, of birds, of figures that seem to have anatomy and bones beneath their draperies, or whether, as, as I've pointed out, some scientific ideas um, that link directly to optics, the development of a, the, the idea of perspective, or in astronomy, like Halley's Comet in uh, Giotto's Nativity. So, what happened next? This proto-early Renaissance was so important. I've mentioned that the second half of the 14th century, Gothic and international Gothic remained. And it was really in 1400 that with the competition for the baptistry doors, the work of Masaccio, Donatello and others, that the true flowering of the Renaissance occurs in the 15th century with the classical revival in arts, science and philosophy, which of course culminates in the High Renaissance in the 16th century in the work of Leonardo, Michelangelo and Raphael. So thank you very much indeed for listening.